Okay, well, first of all, I want to thank uh, JP, Dr. Kress, for joining us. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. Um, it's, it's truly an honor and pleasure to have you join us. Um, for those of you that are, let's just say, more fresh to critical care medicine, I, I just want to give you an idea of uh, JP's contributions to our field. Um, it was uh, one year after, um, it was in 2000, the year after Marin Kolitz, Bolus versus Continuous Sedation Study, that JP and the group out of uh, Chicago published their daily sedative interruption study um, that uh, uh, really uh, started a discussion and began a paradigm shift about um, the role of sedation in critically ill mechanically ventilated patients. Uh, he went on to be involved in the multicenter uh, awakened breathing control trial, the ABC study, uh, looking at some of the same things about uh, minimizing sedation. Um, and has uh, been an author, he is an author on the 2018 Critical Care Medicine PADIS guidelines, which I assume is going to be the focus of his sedation updates today. He also was um, at that group in Chicago uh, with JP, um, among the authors of the, one of the first early mobility studies. Um, and I know that his research interests continue in sedation and uh, early mobility. But for all of you, I want you to know three personal things about J.P. Crests. Um, J.P. played offensive guard on his high school football team. When you meet J.P. at ATS, he is a little shorter than me and not a big man, but it tells you a little bit about his um, effort and determination. Number two, um, he gives a lot of himself outside the hospital. He's gone on multiple medical missions to Haiti. And finally, and maybe most importantly, he's probably the second best ICU procedural person that I'm aware of. <laughs> With that, JP, we're so excited to have you talk about sedation. Oh, you, you thank you, Ajit. This is awesome. I'm really pleased to to get a chance to chat with you with all of you. Um, uh, I, I mean, we'll probably have to go offline to figure out who's the best proceduralist, but I I uh, I'd have to see where Jesse Hall is right now because he's probably uh, just a tiny bit better than me. Um, all right. Um, so I am going to um, try to see if I can share this screen. All right, there we go. Um, all right. So um, what I'm going to try to do is go through the PADIS guidelines as uh, as uh, Ajit just talked about. Um, and uh, touch on the various pieces of this. And then um, uh, I have some newer material that I think is worth a, a bit of a commentary, and some of you um, may be familiar with where I'm going with this. I, I don't have any conflicts of interest. The, this bundle approach has been used for many different problems, in particular in critical care, um, and the ABCDEF uh, bundle, which is listed here um, with pain at the front um, and um, minimizing sedation such that getting people able and ready to come off the ventilator sooner um, can be accomplished. Uh, the importance of delirium and how we, we try our best to manage it in 2022 uh, mobilization and exercise, and and I'll, I'm going to talk about some opinions I have about this, and and uh, the varying literature on this topic, which I think will um, lend itself to some 
hopefully a lively discussion and, and debate. Uh, and then lastly, family involvement and how important that is as we come to learn that when a patient is in the ICU, the um, family and friends that are connected to that person become extremely uh, vital to the optimization of the patient's outcome. So um, when we put together these guidelines in 2018, it was the second version. And there were a number of questions that were out on the table, um, which I'll uh, chat about here for a moment. Uh, the most uh, reliable, valid way to know if somebody is having pain. Um, and, and this is important because many tools that we use are um, nonspecific. Probably the most common that I'm familiar with hearing and seeing is, uh, well, patient's tachycardic, and therefore that must be a reflection of pain. Um, and we know that that is not a reliable indicator. Indeed, the best indicator is to be able to actually interact with the patient and hear that the patient is experiencing pain. Um, and um, so the uh, numeric scale, the um, numeric response scale, zero to 10, has been well, well validated. Uh, and then there are two tools that are used for people who are unable to tell us whether they have pain or not. The behavioral pain scale um, and in both intubated and non-intubated patients, as well as the critical care pain observation tool. Um, those are the ones that the PADIS guidelines advised, recommended, if you will. Um, this is a really important concept, uh, this next slide, the multimodal approach. Uh, we know that opioids are the staple analgesic in critically ill patients, absolutely. And um, it's been interesting for me to observe over the years uh, the swing of the pendulum from a time perhaps in the 90s where people that got intubated got sedated but never received any analgesics. Um, and then uh, it became apparent that this was not ideal. And what I watched in my own ICU, and I think others as well, over the years, say in, in the early 2000s, we started to see these patients who would be receiving extraordinarily high doses of opioids for extended periods of time, and the, that pendulum had swung in the other direction. Um, you know, I mean, the, the example I often give is, um, say, an elderly, frail uh, woman who has COPD and is getting 250 micrograms per hour of fentanyl. And that's probably enough to sink a, you know, a battleship, if you will. And, and so I think what I started to see was the pendulum moving too much in the other direction. And then this interesting idea that started actually uh, in the operating room and was established kind of in the early 90s, this concept of uh, balanced analgesia. And the idea here is if I use analgesics that work by different mechanisms, I may be able to get more synergy and more benefit without the side effects. And so the, the PADIS guidelines talked about this as these other drugs have now become more available. Uh, now, the, the unfortunate thing is we don't have great um, published literature on this, but this pendulum and this 
um, this idea, I think, are both moving back towards a center point, which I think are good. Uh, acetaminophen is available um, um, parenterally. Um, lidocaine, perhaps, NSAIDs can be given parenterally now, um, drugs like ibuprofen, for example. Um, uh, having um, uh, drugs that perhaps block um, neuropathic types of pain, so drugs like gabapentin. Uh, Nifapam is not available in the United States, so that one's interesting, but really more for um, until it uh, gets approved, more for uh, the European side of the Atlantic. And I think ketamine. Ketamine has become a very interesting drug that I've started to see used more. We always feared ketamine when I was younger because the rare side effect of severe um, psycho uh, logical problems. Very rare, 1%, something like that. But if you use a small amount of uh, benzodiazepine along with ketamine, you can often have remarkable analgesia with no respiratory suppression. Um, and so these are some of the alternative options that are now available and worth considering. I have seen many of my colleagues in the pain uh, uh, anesthesia group having benefit, particularly with uh, the use of ketamine, although we don't have great literature on it as of yet. Um, so uh, Dr. Banayak mentioned, uh, this is the paper from the WashU group, um, and it was a, a study that asked the question, if I give the nurses license to modify the sedatives to a target they used the Ramsey score back in the day. This is in the late 90s. Versus just giving the drugs without any direction. And you can see here, there was a significant reduction in length of stay um, and uh, time on the ventilator. And interestingly, even tracheostomies. And our paper, which came out a year uh, later, was a simpler approach, I think, which is to simply stop the drugs every morning until the patient awakens, able to follow instructions, or show signs of distress and agitation, in which case you would restart the drug uh, or drugs. It was propofol and midazolam, and then the opioid was morphine back in the day by continuous infusion. And you can see here, same message, shortened length of stay, shortened um, time on the ventilator, um, and uh, and this, I think, struck a nerve in people to say, hey, you know, we should rethink what we're doing here. Uh, the ABC trial uh, that Dr. Vinayak uh, also mentioned, this is a three-center study. It was Vanderbilt, us, and uh, UPenn, larger number of patients. Tim Gerard, uh, who's now at the University of Pittsburgh, was the lead author. And what we found here, essentially the same message, shortened time in the ventilator, Time in the ICU and the hospital less. Um, even mortality was reduced at one year. Um, and the, um, the Richmond score was significantly lower because we were whittling down these drugs. No matter what drug you use, the drugs will accumulate over time. Now, self-extubation, interesting there was a significantly higher incidence of self-extubation, 10% versus 4%. You might say, oh, goodness, that's problematic. But 
the need to be reintubated was no different, suggesting that maybe sometimes the patients were able to know before the care providers that it was okay to take the tube out. And there was a strong trend towards tracheostomy reduction. So that led the Pattis group to ask the question uh, whether we should think about light or deep sedation um, and, and what studies are out there to give us some insight into this. And you can see here that the time to, to extubation um, in randomized trials uh, strongly favored, though not quite of statistical significance in a meta-analysis of three. Um, the uh, time to extubation in observational studies actually did show statistical significance in a meta-analysis. And the tracheostomy rate, um, uh, one randomized and one observational uh, study significantly uh, showed a, re a reduction in tracheostomy rate. Delirium, post-traumatic stress disorder, and depression were not reduced in this meta-analysis. Um, 90-day mortality and, um, and self-extubation, also not different. We'll touch on that a little bit later when it comes to what are the best endpoints to look at when you're analyzing a problem. And perhaps the negative study that you'll hear me talk about a bit later is more a reflection of picking the wrong endpoint than it is that the intervention doesn't show benefit. So that the group together, the PADIS group, which is about 20 care providers, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, uh, um, and even uh, a lay person, um, suggested that light versus deep sedation um, it was a conditional recommendation. Some of the problems are these definitions of light, moderate, and deep are, are not all exactly the same. Um, we don't know a tremendous amount about the drugs we actually choose um, and um, the fact that some people's needs may change over time, therefore mandating an adjustment of the level of sedation. So those are some of the limitations whenever you do an analysis like this. The SEDCOM trial, 2009 JAMA, uh, uh, Rich Riker was the lead author, um, and this was a study that asked the question, comparing midazolam to dexmedetomidine. And what you can see here um, is that there was a reduction in delirium. There was a um, better time, uh, I'm sorry, a better time to extubation and a reduced um, duration of sedation. More delirium-free days. Shift another year forward. And we can see that the, the, the concept, the pendulum is continuing to move away from the days of routine drug-induced coma for people that are intubated. And so this paper by Trump, Thomas Strom's group that was published in The Lancet in 2010 said, what if we just don't use any sedative at all? That seems crazy. Well, no sedation doesn't mean no anything. No sedation was the use of an opioid only. And in this case, the, the, the drug that was used was morphine. And look what they found. Morphine only, better ventilator-free days, better length of stay in the, in the ICU and in the hospital. 
Now, here's an important thing when you look at these data, um, or any study for that matter. Um, the punchline, the, the abstract, often gives you a, a, just a, a thumbnail sketch, but, but digging a little deeper can sometimes give you some insight into perhaps things you wouldn't have thought of. For example, the hospital length of stay in the control group, 58 days. That's two months. Now, every one of you uh, uh, sitting here listening to this, I, I'm sure will say, oh, my goodness, two months? Well, they don't have LTACs in Denmark. And so people stay in the hospital literally forever or, or until they die. So that's why this is the average length of stay, two months. Next point. Look at this. Is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? Oh, my goodness. One out of five people couldn't tolerate this. Opioids only, just it didn't work. The patient was not manageable with that and had to be given sedatives. Yeah, but the four out of five didn't. So I would argue that's a glass half full, not a glass half empty. You can see here the Kaplan-Meier curves, obvious separation between the two groups uh, with regard to length of stay in the ICU and the hospital and fairly early over the time course. Another important point, um, not only in terms of reading literature, but also in terms of thinking about studies if you're going to design your own study. The landscape changes over time. And it's one of the probably, I would say in my experience currently in 2022, is the greatest bane of my existence is when I look at, have a paper that we submit for peer review. What's the biggest criticism that comes? Your control group was bad. Never heard that in the past, but now it's becoming a common theme. Why is that? I think the reason is that as we get more understanding, as the literature expands, it is no longer acceptable to design a trial where the control group is back in the 90s and the intervention group is 2022. It's just not acceptable. Some would even argue it's not ethical to do that. Now, interestingly, most of the pharmaceutical companies still use that model. The latest and greatest COPD drug, I just got out of clinic, and so I had a lot of patients that I gave COPD drugs today, is compared to triamcinolone, which is a drug that hasn't been used for decades. Guess what? The new one works better. And, and part of that is because that the, the danger for the pharmaceutical companies, I think, this is what I, what I believe, it's too dangerous for them to choose a competitor in the current market. Because one of the two drugs is going to lose, probably, and then it's going to hurt the pharmaceutical industry dramatically. So having said all that as a background, it's important because here's a paper that was published by the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group, uh, lead author Sangeeta Mehta in 2012, and she asked the question, daily sedative interruption compared to with or without a sedation protocol. So protocolized sedation 
versus protocolized sedation along with daily sedative interruption. These drugs uh, that were used in this study, midazolam and fentanyl, and there was no difference in any discernible outcome. Is that a positive study or a negative study? I guess it depends on how you think about things again. Just to give you a little bit of an illustration, look at how much midazolam was given to the patients in this study per day. 102 milligrams of midazolam every day and 82. Look at how much fentanyl, 19,000 micrograms versus 13,5. These are whopping doses of these drugs. And so I think the reason that this study showed no difference is two things. We're regressing to the mean as we get better and better at what we do. That's a good thing, I think. So that the incremental new thing I'm going to try when the old things I'm doing are really good compared to in the past of not so good makes it harder to hit the target. And then secondly, in this study, at least, I think they just use so much opioid and so much midazolam that you're just not going to see a difference. Fast forward a little bit more to the near, to the current era we're in. And this is a study from, from um, Yaya Shahabi's group from uh, Australia, New Zealand, and um, it looked at sedation with dexmedetomidine. And what it showed uh, was that there was no significant difference between dexmedetomidine and usual care. Same question. Is that a positive study or a negative study? For me, what this study did was allowed me to say dexmedetomidine is a viable option in my armamentarium. It's been shown in a large multi-center trial to be equivalent to usual care, which may be viewed as propofol or benzos or whatever. And then a couple of years later, the group sends or publishes this trial, 2021, and compares DEX to propofol, the MENS2 trial. The primary endpoint was days alive. Um, there's no difference between these two groups in any of the primary endpoints. And you can see here, the adjusted odds ratio crosses number one, crosses number one, crosses number one, crosses number one. No significant difference. Just as a side note, it's interesting how the rules of reporting things seem to change for whatever reason. The New England Journal wanted people to report um, odds ratios rather than p-values. It's just looking at things through a different scope. And you can see here the overall survival is absolutely no difference between the two drugs. Is that a positive study or a negative study? To me, it, it tells me that dexmedetomidine and propofol are viable options. Here's uh, Thomas Strom's group. This time, um, Hani Olson is the lead author and asks the question, non-sedation, 
or what has now moved into the mainstream in 2020, the so-called light sedation. So the Pattis group says light sedation is what we recommend. And then uh, the the Danish group asks, will there be a difference between non-sedation and light sedation? Well, certainly the scores uh, with regard to the Richmond um, agitation sedation scale are clearly different. So they, they had separation of the groups, which is a vitally important thing in any randomized trial in order to show that what you, your protocol intended to do actually did that. And I'll talk about this in a few minutes when we get to the early mobility stuff. And the probability of survival was no different. If you look at all the uh, um, the outcomes, um, you can see a, si- a similar message, um, which is it seems that most of these cross unity one, except interestingly here, a major thromboembolic event um, was more common in the group that got sedatives compared to the group that got opioids. That's a secondary outcome, and reviewers will say you can't tout that. It's a hypothesis-generating observation. Shifting gears now, we're going to talk about mobilization. This is the paper that our group published in 2009. Uh, uh, Bill Schweikert is the lead author. Mark Pullman was the, um, the other fellow on the study. And it was a multidisciplinary with physicians, nurses, uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists, um, and it was a, a multi-center trial. So uh, Greg Schmidt and his group uh, from the University of Iowa partnered with our group. What did we find? We found that the ability to be returning to independent functional status, we only enrolled people that were functionally independent when they landed in the hospital. If you have a, a nursing home bedridden patient, it's not very likely at their baseline. It's not very likely that physical therapy is going to make them any better than their baseline. So we, we targeted only people for whom baseline functional status was independent. What does independent mean? It means you can do all of your activities of daily living and you can walk on your own. Because if you can't do your ADLs, and walk, you can't take care of yourself by yourself. But look what we found here. Dramatic improvement in return to independent functional status, significant reductions in delirium, both ICU and hospital delirium, um, ventilator-free days significantly improved, a trend towards length of stay in the ICU improving. And most importantly, one and a half days before the patients got mobilized, one and a half days on the median. And the rate limiting step in this trial was getting consent. Fast forward seven years, the group uh, from the um, multidisciplinary, uh, multi center group from um, uh, the Boston 
uh, Harvard system, along with some um, uh, overseas colleagues like Nicola Latronico, did the same exact study, but it was in a SICU population. Time to mobilization no later than one day after trial enrollment. The message is exactly the same. Functionally independent, um, uh, length of stay in the ICU, um, all of these things, delirium reduced, uh, length of stay in the hospital. Um, I'll just make a, a sidebar joke comment. Dr. Vinayak knows this well. At the University of Chicago, the rate limiting step to getting out of the hospital is always the system and the crazy inefficientness. I've never done a study in my life at my place, and I've been in the same place the whole time, where hospital length of stay ever changes. And that's because people sit out on the floor and nobody gets them ready to get out of there because our system is not good. So when I look at places like Boston and I go, oh, you guys got patients out of the hospital faster, it just makes me jealous. <laughs> All right. So early physical activity is extremely important. Here's a study that did not get it so early, about three days um, on average. And what you see here is um, no difference in ventilator uh, times. Um, uh, the mobility maximum score was just barely better. And all of the other endpoints were really no different. Why is that? Because they, they waited too long. As my friend Bill Schweikert used to say, time is muscle. And I think he is spot on with that. Here's another one. This is a group from uh, Colorado, uh, led by Mark Moss. This is a scale that just looks at um, how functional you are. It's a validated tool. No difference between the two groups. First VT therapy session was on eight days after being on the ventilator. Eight days. Of course, there's not going to be a difference. It's too late. As I said, time is muscle. And then this paper, which many of you probably saw, that just came out in the New England Journal, uh, the TEAM study, Early Active Mobilization During Mechanical Ventilation in the ICU. This is a, a large multi-center trial, 370 patients in each group. Um, and what you can see here is the level of mobilization. Um, so an IMS score three is sitting on the edge of the bed. An IMS four um, is um, weight bearing, so basically feet on the floor. Um, and an IMS seven is walking with two people helping you or more. And look at the, um, the number of patients and the median number of days it took in the early mobilization group, three, three, five. That's too late. Here's another way of looking at it. Early mobilization in these very early days, usual care and early mobilization. Mobility scale, the gray zero is nothing. Look at this, 70% of the patients, 50% of the patients um, 
here's an in-chair exercise. You have to get your feet on the floor if mobilization is going to work. And all of these patients. So there really isn't a huge separation of the groups in this trial. The early mobilization a little bit earlier, but not substantively different compared to usual care. Then the other thing that that, that the group of investigators um, reported, which I, as you can probably tell by now, I I have a a strong difference of opinion as to the validity of these results in terms of, not the validity of the results, but the, the way that the study was touted, if you will. So they said 9.2% versus 4.1%. So a, a little more than a doubling of adverse events. What are the adverse events? Well, cardiac arrhythmia and oxygen desaturation. Now, that's a vague, what type of arrhythmia? One could argue that sinus tachycardia is an arrhythmia. I'm not surprised if somebody gets up and, and has a, um, becomes tachycardic transiently and then goes back down. Importantly, if you ask the question, which is hidden in the supplement about serious adverse events, what do you see? One arrhythmia versus zero. I'm sorry, five arrhythmias versus zero. One desaturation that was significant, that is less than 80%. One in each group, no difference. And there was another one that was a CDA. Do we really think that the stroke happened because of mobility? Certainly, it couldn't have been diagnosed in the throes of mobility. It may have been suspected, but I'm skeptical about that. More importantly, I took the liberty of doing my own Kai-Fisher exact test And you can see here that the p-value is not significant, not significant. The level of sedation. So the guidelines currently advise that you keep a level of sedation between zero and minus two, the RAS score. So that's green, blue, and yellow, okay? Look at how few patients had green, blue, and yellow over the first three days in both groups. There's no separation between these groups. And indeed, in the the study, the authors noted one of the limitations was the level of sedation. If you don't wake your patients up, you can't do this. So I would respectfully say, though the team trial got published in the New England Journal, and I, I, I I applaud them for that major accomplishment, that there was not a significant separation of the two groups, that the adverse events were overstated, and that there was too much sedation that led to the inability to see its separation of the groups. And lastly, and this is important, I think, one of the problems with doing things in a critically ill population that are difficult There's no question early mobilization is is not easy. No question about that. But, well, yours was a multi-center trial and ours was a single-center trial. 
And what I would say is, okay, each of those have upsides and downsides. The nice thing about a smaller single center trial is you can more reliably accomplish what your protocol seeks to accomplish by getting people with a dedicated group. It's a proof of principle. So I would respectfully argue that the current proof of principle for early mobilization is strong, but it requires very early, very early, by two days, I think you've lost your window of opportunity. And a dedicated group of people who have familiarity and comfort in doing this kind of thing. Delirium, another part of the PADIS guidelines. There aren't many studies that have shown a drug benefits delirium. In fact, the studies that have tried to look at this with drugs like the antipsychotics, for example, have universally failed. Here's one interesting drug from uh, the uh, group in Montreal and also um, Boston. So uh, Ioana Skrabic and uh, Nick Hill and and John Devlin. Um, And what they did was um, they randomized people to placebo or low-dose dexmedetomidine. And they showed a significant reduction in ICU delirium. I would argue that this is probably not so much a statement about that dexmedetomidine somehow undoes delirium, if that's a proper word, but rather it's a more forgiving drug than all the other alternatives, like benzos, like propofol. So that dexmedetomidine may allow you to avoid delirium because of the drugs that are out there for sedation and or analgesia it is the least likely to induce this condition. It reminds me of a funny story, I can tell you. Um, So when I was uh, younger, we were doing a trial looking at propofol compared to dexmedetomidine. Unfortunately, the study never finished because the the drug company that was sponsoring it uh, essentially ran out of um, lipid for the propofol. But anyway, we had a a patient randomized and it was a Sunday. I was on service and I was busy and the bears were playing. That's Chicago bears who are um, maybe, I don't know, gee, what do you think? They're a little better than the uh, commanders or, or no? We're a playoff team. Yeah. Okay. Right. Thanks for that. Anyway, the Bears are playing the Colts, and um, I walk in, and this patient who's on the study, um, he's, he has a sweatshirt on, and it's a Bears sweatshirt. Now, the guy's intubated, and, and it wasn't a zipper sweatshirt. It was like a pullover sweatshirt, and I'm thinking to myself, how the heck did he get that sweatshirt on? So, of course, I had to ask, and his family was all in there, and they were laughing, and the nurse said, oh, I just disconnected him from the vent so he could put his Bears sweatshirt on. So, okay, fine. So, um, and I say to him, and he's, he's wide awake and very comfortable. I say to him, all right, so who are you pulling for today? And of course he, he gives me the evil eye. Like, what are you talking about? So I, I go off and I'm busy and I, I'm running around and I forget. Also, I'm like, oh my God, the, the game must be almost over. 
So I run back in this guy's room and I'm like, I, and I say, Hey, what's going on? And I look up and the score they're playing the Colts was like 38 to three in favor of the Colts. And the guy points his finger at me and, and sort of, you know, with a look, come toward me look. And I walk over, he points to the, the little clipboard that he was writing things on. And of course he knew he was on the study as did his family. And he grabs the pen and he writes, I want the other drug, <laughs> which I think was probably propofol as opposed to dexmedetomidine. All right. Anyway. All right. Uh, family. So here's a nice trial that was uh, done by um, uh, Margaret Carriage's group um, and Jill Cameron, who was the lead author. And what her group did was ask the question, what happens to the, the family, the caregivers of ICU patients? And what you can see here is um, a dramatic uh, level of depression that is seen in this population. Maybe it decreased a little bit over 12 months, but not much. And that, I think, is an important reminder to us that the family is a part of this unit and needs to be considered. Um, neuromuscular blockers, just a few quick comments. There are two major trials here. Um, this is uh, Laurent Papazian's 2010 New England Journal study, cisatropurium for 48 hours. Um, and and it, it, sorry, it's yellow here, but um, you can see that there was a um, significant reduction um, in mortality of all causes between the two groups with cystic hearing being favorable. But then the pedal trial came out nine years later and there was absolutely no difference. Larger study um, and, uh, and, and the benefit was simply not seen with regard to survival uh, or being able to um, go home. So I think the jury is out on neuromuscular blockade. I don't think it's the evidence currently would mandate it for everyone with severe ARDS, uh, but more of what I would refer to perhaps as a, a rescue therapy. And you can see here um, the, the mortality p-values essentially cross each other. All right. Now, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so, I'm just going to briefly go through, with all this evidence, why is it that we don't do it like we quote unquote, should do it. And I, I think there's a few things here. Awareness of the evidence, um, a really important concept, which I call the short-term perspective of a long-term outcome. I'll get to that in a minute. Nursing staffing is huge. That's a major, major limit. Probably the biggest one, practically speaking. The other thing is uh, not on my watch. I don't want to have a complication on my watch. And so, you know, self-extubation, is it psychologically harmful to the patient to experience a reduction in sedative? What about the hypoxemia, the desaturations that occur? Is there myocardial ischemia or other types of tubes and catheters that get uh, removed? And then the failure to recognize that all these drugs have a propensity to accumulate if you just keep using them for indefinite periods of time. Short-term perspective of a long-term outcome. What we do to patients in the ICU may not be palpable to us, but it matters downstream. And I'll show you some examples of that in a minute. And so um, 
uh, education of, of care providers. And also what I find very powerful is a, an opportunity to have an occasional patient who comes back to the ICU after a dreadful, long critical illness. And to have the staff, particularly the nurses, see, oh my gosh. And, and, it's, and to me, that's one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had as a doctor, which is to have a chance to take a group of people that I worked closely with and say to them, you see this patient here? That's because of you. You did something that made this person better and saved their life. It's really powerful. It's also important to remember that people vary. You know, I mean, the, the young, big, strong player who, uh, player, uh, you know, football player or basketball player is going to generally be harder to sedate than a, a frail elderly person. Don't forget about substance abuse. Um, and when people are chronically ill, as an overarching general statement, they often require less medication. The nursing staffing ratio, as I said, is the biggest practical barrier, and, and no one has a good solution for that. And so I think COVID has made this even harder because of burnout and, um, uh, and, and I mean, you know, drive down the street, right? You can't miss it. It's everywhere. Every Burger King, every McDonald's, every, you know, Staples, every Home Depot have signs up, help wanted. It's hard to find people that, that want to work now because, and I think COVID is a big reason for that. I think it's also important to let the nurses have control. I like Marin Califf, um, um study, that very first one that I showed you, because it basically said to the nurses, you guys are better at this than we are, the doctors. So just run with it. And giving the nurses the opportunity to feel like they're important, a part of the team, and doing something important and powerful. This one, if you're looking for zero complications, you're in the wrong business. It's not possible in the ICU, impossible. Overt complications versus covert are not the same, right? If I put you into a drug-induced coma, you may not self-extubate on my watch, but you end up going to an LTAC never to walk again. And if you look at self-extubation, you know, and here's the trials, every single study, except this Lancet one, where it was 10%, that was significant, but reintubations were not. So all these big trials have shown that self-extubation happens, and it isn't different between the two groups with regard to what matters. Wake me when it's over. Sometimes the nurses will say, oh my goodness, if I was in that spot, just put me into a coma, and I would hate to be aware of any of this while it was going on. So we actually studied this when we did our, our original uh, daily wake-up trial. And what we found was that post-traumatic stress disorder, paradoxically, was more common in people who did not get awakened, not the other way around. The study shows the same thing. Light versus deep sedation, the PTSD scores, if anything, trending towards deep sedation doing worse. Depression, worse. Certainly not 
harmful. This is um, Thomas Strom's no sedation. Every single one of these between the no sedation and the standard, admittedly, the numbers are small here, not significantly different, suggesting that minimizing sedation does not carry a psychological burden. So in conclusion, um, I think most of these things now are fairly obvious and, and well-known. ICU sedation is anything but benign. And reducing it, um, it allows better time to awakening, off the ventilator faster, reduced lengths of stay, um, uh, complications of critical illness, uh, mortality, at least in one study, tracheostomy, pressure sores, uh, PTSD, and ICU delirium, all improved with the ABCDEF bundle. This is the HIPAA compliant picture, just so you know. Um, and this is a patient uh, with one of our therapists who's sitting just about ready to stand up and walk while he's intubated. This is doable. Um, as I said, not, not easy to just snap your fingers and make it happen. My advice, if you're looking to try to get this going, if perhaps it isn't um, very active in your own institution, you need to have a couple of champions. You need a physical and occupational therapy champion who are comfortable with dealing with ICU patients. That's key. And you need to have nurses that are willing to allow this to happen. And if you can get that, this is very doable. So we got a few minutes left. Um, and I really, uh, once again, appreciate this opportunity. This has been awesome. And it's so nice to, to see everyone again. Um, and I have time for a few questions, uh, if anybody has questions. Thanks for your attention.